Ladies and gentlemen, it's absolutely a wonderful pleasure to, to welcome you all this morning at this great opportunity for learning. And as you will probably agree, one of the greats in the, feeling the heartbeat of a formidable library. I think you will probably agree with me that Africa has received more advice than any continent can accommodate. We were advised and we have been advised by multinationals, uh, multinational NGOs, uh, by politicians, by political theorists, uh, by rock stars. Uh, <laughs> point is, we've been well advised. But I think at the end of the day, um, it's up to us who live here to live with the consequence of our decisions. And um, we have to live with that. So I think the important thing for us is what I feel very encouraged about is the conversation emerging about the Pan-African identity. And what is this about? In essence, it's about connecting the major economies in our continent uh, to forge a brand new network from which we can work. And last week we were fortunate to visit Nigeria, and in the course of the last two years we visited several other economies in our, in our continent to see how this could actually work. And what this continental discussion is about is about building a bridge, and this bridge needs to be strong enough to carry the weight of global excellence and stature, but it also needs to be wide enough to afford scholars and students, politicians, economists, and business people uh, to, to travel. And the base of this bridge needs to be solid. And last week in our visit to Nigeria, it was so encouraging to note a couple of things, because we are, after all, the two biggest economies in the, on the continent. The first was that, as us, in our constitution and in the Nigerian context, human dignity is valued. And this is a formidable foundation to use as a common platform to work from. The second thing that I found very encouraging was the sense of entrepreneurship among the Nigerians. Now, those of you who have experienced traffic in Lagos would probably understand this. Uh, what it basically boils down to is that there are two lanes going this way, two lanes coming that way. You're not quite sure which one accommodates which side of the traffic. Um, and it's very flexible. And the most important tool in navigating in Lagos is your hooter. So you keep on hooting, and if you'd like to take a short left or a short right or whatever the case might be, you just do so. But everything is connected. And as you drive along the roads, you see new economies, new businesses evolving, interestingly being clustered in groups of people selling specific things. It's almost like having a macro or a game selling specific things, but just without a roof. It's a fascinating concept. And what it tells you about is the magic of informality. And in our way of thinking, we often use project management principles, but doing business in Africa doesn't always work that way. You need to honor the drive of entrepreneurship. To put it very, put it very pragmatically, if you ask a Nigerian child of about five to six, what is seven times 250, you'll probably have to wait for an answer. But if you say, I want to buy seven of these and I'll pay you 250 each, you'll get the answer in a second. <laughs> That's how it works. And isn't this wonderful that we have this magic in the continent that we can mine and delve into and can learn from? What I also found interesting is that Nigerian foreign policy is closely linked to domestic policy. But of most important is, and as Chris would probably agree with me, economic diplomacy. And it's about how to wangle great deals into your country, into your continent. How to be a player instead of being the ball. And this is really important. So when you look, think, apply this to the UJ context, you will probably remember that UJ has come a long way over the last couple of years. Professor Eunice, you probably would like to know that UJ now counts among the top 4% of universities globally. And we are seriously about moving towards the top 3% and making a huge difference in our continent. 
by being part of the conversation of this emerging Pan-African identity. And the investment will be made, and we would like to be a contributor. So with this in mind, is um, we have to think and learn from others as well to see how we can get there, because this is a massive project. And that's why it's great to have a scholar with us of note, a teacher of note. It's a word that we honor as teaching and learning and have you with us. As Professor Marwala has pointed out, he doesn't have to be introduced. Um, but what is important is just to point out that he's a Bangladeshi banker. He's a professor of economics at Shetartongong University in Bangladesh. And he has developed the concept of microcredit and microfinance. And then he became a Nobel laureate. Um, he has received several international honors, including the U.S. Congressional Gold Medal. He was rated by Foreign Policy magazine as among the top 100 thought leaders. If I'm not mistaken, you were among the top three global thought leaders at that time. Uh, you co-founded the UNIS Social Business, global initiatives to empower social businesses to address and solve social problems around the world. You will be delighted to know that UJ has got a Center for Social Economy and Social Entrepreneurship, which was launched in 2011, and it's making great strides in helping to implement the National Development Plan. Uh, he's also the Chancellor of Glasgow Caledonian University in Scotland. And again, you'll be delighted to know that we have major relationships with your university uh, in terms of transport supply chain and logistics. Our major uh, railway and road transport systems are investing hugely now into the north, and uh, we are responsible for the management development part of that rollout. And then finally, a founding member of Grameen America and Grameen Foundation, which supports microcredit. So, Professor Yunus, it is wonderful to have you with us. It is such an honor, and thank you for affording us the opportunity to share your wisdom. So, ladies and gentlemen, could we please welcome Professor Mohamed Yunus. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Well, it's it. I'm absolutely delighted that I can get this chance to meet you. I come from university background, so I feel very comfortable when I know the university community. Uh, of course, I'm not here to give you any advice. <laughs> you have enough of it. I will just give you uh, our experiences, how uh, I got, got involved with the things that I did. Uh, I, I'm from Bangladesh. It's a country with 160 million people, with a very small space. We are the most densely populated country in the whole world. We literally feel each other next to each other, <laughs> wherever we go. So, uh, we, we hardly you can put another person in, in between. Uh, and of course, population is rising, still rising. And then the global warming hits us very hard because as the uh, sea level rises, uh, our land is very flat, very close to sea level. So as the sea level rises, country kind of slides into it. So people have to be dislodged from the areas. So we become tighter and tighter. Uh, we became separated from uh, Pakistan. There were two parts of Pakistan, if you recollect. One in East Pakistan and West Pakistan. We are from East Pakistan at that time. We got into real trouble with the other part of Pakistan. 
and we started the war of liberation. Lots of people died in the process in 1971. When they became a separate country called ourselves Bangladesh, it was a devastated country. It was a poor country in the beginning, but it, after the war, it's extremely, extremely, extremely difficult situation. So with a large population, extreme poverty, uh, many of the American uh, policymakers told that this is a basket case, meaning that uh, you really don't have to pay any attention because it will have its natural death, it will not survive. So there we were trying to struggle to build up a new country. And, uh, we became independent in 1971, but we had a terrible famine in 1974, soon after the independence. And it's not located in a particular region, it was spread out for the whole country. People died of hunger in large numbers. So you can see where our starting was. Population-wise, I think about 85% of the population was under poverty line in 1971. So we struggled along the way. So our politics has not been always a very um, commendable politics, I must say. It's always a quarrelsome politics. But we moved on. The interesting thing is, uh, as we discussed the Millennium Development Goals, goal number one is to reduce poverty by half by 2015. So two more years plus to go. But the happy news that Bangladesh has, we have achieved the number one goal, reducing poverty by half this year, uh, in the middle of the year, so two and a half years before the terminal date of 2015. So that was a, quite an achievement for Bangladesh, coming with extreme poverty and coming to a level to achieve the Millennium Development Goal to reduce poverty by half. And today our poverty is under 30%, so coming from 85% to 30% is quite an achievement. If you look at the other goals, Millennium Development Goals, out of seven, one is accomplished. We are hoping by 2015 we'll achieve all the eight Millennium Development Goals because we are on the track, we are moving quite steadily on the one. Only one we are still uh, kind of lacking. We still uh, have to work very hard to make it happen, is the maternal death. Uh, that is uh, something that we cannot deliver in a nationwide way is to protect women uh, to save their lives that child delivery. So that's one part we would have to work very hard before we come to the finishing line and make sure all the eight millennium development goals are achieved. My work began during the famine. I was a teacher in the United States in one of the universities. When Bangladesh became independent, I resigned from my job immediately, came back to Bangladesh and joined one of the universities, you mentioned Chittagong University, uh, teaching economics. Here I was a young teacher, and with lots of enthusiasm teaching the elegant theories of economics to my classroom. And as you come out of the class, you see people dying of hunger. So you're not far away from the deaths of people. So you question yourself, how good is your economics? If it doesn't solve the problem of the people, you can't do anything about it. There's nothing in your box which you can offer 
that this is how we save people. So it's a very frustrating experience for any person. Um, and you feel, in a way, useless, uh, completely uh, of no worth, that you cannot be of some use to some people who are dying in large numbers. So one thing I did, I said, forget about those textbook economics. I'm still a human being. I don't have to call myself economist or anything like that. As a human being, I can always go out and stand next to another human being and make myself useful to another human being in some way. I don't know how, but I must find out how it can be done. Even if it helps a person for one day, why not? At least I know that I have spent the day well. So I started doing that because university is located right in the middle of villages, not city center village, a city center campus. So I could easily cross the boundary line of the campus and be with the people in the village. I did a lot of small things to kind of feel myself that I have some use left in me that I can make myself useful. And one thing struck me as I become more and more familiar with the village, how the loan sharks lend tiny little money to poor people and grab the full control of their life. All their possessions, everything comes in their control because he lent some money to that person. And it's so ugly. You cannot believe a human being can be so cruel to another human being. And you fume about it, you feel terrible about it, but you have nothing you can do because it's such an entrenched system. People leave money, they go to the these people who can lend money, and this is what happens. And I thought this is not something that I can do because it is a nationwide problem, not just one tiny village. And probably it's a global problem. Nobody could do anything. Suddenly it came to my mind, I can solve the problem in this village. And the idea was a very simple idea. Why don't I lend the money? So I can tell people, they can come to me, I can lend the money, they don't have to go to loan sharks. Why should I be fuming about it? I can solve it. And immediately I got into action, I started lending money from my own pocket. My first loan was $27, given to 42 people. Can you imagine how small the loan was? An excitement that it generated. Suddenly I felt that yes, that was something useful I did to people. But I didn't realize how many more people would come to me to borrow from me. Because now that they know that I'm giving the money without those conditionalities of the loan sharks, they started flocking around me. I was not upset, I was very happy, giving more money from my pocket as far as I could go. Then as it expanded, my money was running out. And I thought, I could do better things like that. Like, why don't I connect these people to the bank which is located right in the campus? They can lend money. This is their business. So I went to the bank, talked to the manager. He fell from the sky. I couldn't believe that any sane person could propose such a thing, lend money to poor people. He said, impossible. He said, it's absolutely unheard of. And bank is the least interested institution you can find. So the more he tried to persuade me, the more agitated I got. 
I thought everything he's saying is wrong. And I started meeting higher officials in the banking sector. Everybody tells me the same thing. It cannot be done. People are not creditworthy. It's impossible to lend money to them. I don't give up. I keep making very strong statements against them. I said, look, it's very funny to see banking because banks are created to lend money. That's what their business. You have done it in a very such a funny way. You lend money to people who have already money. And you don't lend money to people who don't have money. You should have been doing the other way. That's a logical thing to do. Lend money to people who don't have money. They laughed at me. I thought that was totally wrong approach of the bankers. But I could not persuade them. So ultimately what I did, I offered myself as a guarantor. I said, I'll sign every paper you give me. I take the risk, you give the money. And if somebody doesn't pay, if all of them don't pay, I pay because I'm the guarantor. It sounded very well, but the banks were not impressed right away. It took months to convince them that they can work like this. So finally, they assessed all my positions and how much net worth I have, not much. But finally, I paid for a small sum of money. I said, okay, that's good beginning. That's how it began in 1976. And we kept on expanding it. And people loved it. At one point, bank felt that they are at a very serious risk. It's becoming so big. It may collapse anytime, and they will be in trouble. I cannot pay back all this money. I was happily merrily signing all the papers. That's no problem. If my signature means something to somebody, why not? I just keep it. I don't worry whether I pay back or not. But the banks are worried. Then I said, forget about the banks. Why don't I create a bank myself? So I went ahead with that idea and convinced everybody. Finally, in 83, we converted ourselves into a bank, called it Damin Bank, or the Village Bank, and continued to do the same thing. And people ask me, how did you create this amazing bank which works? Did you have lots of research behind it? I said, no, I'm a very lazy person. I don't do any research. <laughs> I just go ahead and do it, whatever comes to my mind. Then I started explaining a little bit better. I said, you know what? It was easy for me to do that. It was not a big, big thing. Whenever I needed a rule, a procedure, how to do that, I just look at the conventional banks, how they do it. After all, they're in business for a long time. So when I learned how they do it, I just go ahead and do the opposite. <laughs> and it worked. They go to the rich, I go to the poor. They go to men, I go to women. Today, Grameen Bank has eight and a half million borrowers. 97% of them are women. So you can imagine how concentrated we are on women. So this is just a reversal of the conventional banks. And we made it our first principle. Again, almost uh, the opposite of what conventional banks do. Conventional banks require you to come to their office and do all business in their office. Universe that. We said people should not come to the bank. Banks should go to people. So we started serving our 
work our product and our service at the doorstep of the borrowers of Raman Bank. So when I say eight and a half million borrowers, they're spread into all the villages of Bangladesh. No village in Bangladesh is left. And our job is done in a weekly basis. All the repayment is done on a weekly basis. All transactions are done on a weekly basis for the same person. So we literally, within one week, we meet all these eight and a half million borrowers at their doorstep and do the business at their doorstep. They don't have to come to our office. They don't even have to know where is our office is because we come and do the business with them. We don't need any, any collateral. Conventional bank requires you to have more before you get some more. We discarded that idea completely. So forget about it because uh, if you're dealing with the poor people, if you ask for something, it's, it's ridiculous to ask for any identification on the basis of wealth or positions and so on. So we said forget it. So we let's build a system which is based on trust. Today we lend out over one and a half billion dollars in tiny loans every year and every year it goes bigger and bigger. No papers because we don't have any collateral. So people, these are all illiterate peoples. People, they don't have any meaning of the papers. What do you, it's useless to have papers. Conventional banks, because they need collateral, they need lawyers. Because lawyers have to put everything tightly down so that you can't get away from the bank. Since we don't need any collateral, we don't have any lawyers. We're the only lawyer-free bank in the whole world. <laughs> it has more meaning because there is no paper that you can present to any court or anything. But it works, people pay back. And many became interested in South Africa to start one of the person who has been working very hard, Zaneli Mbeki, Women's Development Bank. So she has been visiting us back and forth to start microcredit program here and many other organizations in South Africa that they have visited them in the past to see how it's happening. So it became a global phenomenon. Not only it works in Bangladesh, but now it works all over the world. People say, can this third world Asian kind of activity be useful to other countries? I said, if your people need money and the banks don't give the money, of course it will be useful. So people start trying it out. Today, hardly there is any country in the world which doesn't have a microcredit program or a government program. Interesting thing that we, there were a lot of debates in the USA. They tried many ways to start microcredit program. And they say it didn't work. So probably this is not good for the United States. People are very different. They're independent. They don't care about the procedure that we follow. I said, no, simply you didn't do it the right way. If you have done it the right way, you should have worked. After a while, after years of this debate, they got fed up with me. I said, okay, if you say it will work, why don't you come and do it for us? And show us that it works. So I got so fed up with their argument, I said, okay, I'll do it. So I took the challenge in 2008, in January, started a program in New York City called Come in America. 
Now today we have six branches in New York City. We have over 13,000 borrowers, 100% women, follow every single rule that we apply in Bangladeshi village in the heart of New York City. Now it's everywhere in New York City and every single borough has a grammar program there and it keeps on expanding. Because it works well, many other cities became interested. They requested us to do the same thing in other cities. So we started another branch three years back in Omaha, Nebraska, another in Los Angeles, another in San Francisco, another in Indianapolis. Last one we did was Charlotte, North Carolina. Together, we have lent out $102 million so far. Repayment rate is 99.4%. Nobody believed that in the USA you can do such a thing without collateral, without guarantee, without anything. You lend money, people pay you back. Average loan in all over the United States is $1,500. You wouldn't believe how people desperately work for you to get that $1,500 loan. So important for them. Because the alternative to that, the Grameen loan, is to go to the money, what they call payday lenders. I'm sure you're familiar with that concept. And a payday lenders interest rate, 500%, 1,000%, 2,000%, it goes on. So as I look at the banking system, it doesn't extend beyond their very privileged world to the common people. What kind of system is that? So I kept on questioning the very basis of the banking system. I said, something terribly wrong. When the 2008 crisis happened, I kept telling the bankers there, we have already started our bike credit program in 2008, January. It happened in the later part of the year, the financial crisis. I tell the journalists at that time, I said, look, the banks are collapsing on the other side of the street. On this side of the street, Grameen is flourishing. We had no problem. <laughs> In the beginning, people were telling me, poor people are not credit worthy. Now, why don't you ask now, who is credit worthy? <laughs> so this is, this is a real question. We don't ask those questions. And we carry on the way it is. Along the way, when we do the Grameen program, we started many other programs, many other initiatives, because poverty is not a one-dimensional thing. There are so many dimensions to it. When you get involved with the poor people, you start noticing those problems more and more clearly. And you feel you can do something about it. I felt the same way. I can do something about it. So whenever I look at the problem, I have a natural response to that problem. A natural response is to create a business to solve that problem. Everything I did, if you notice all the activities that I was involved in, my technique is to create a business to solve the problem of the poor. So I created many such companies, more than 60 companies I created. You remember, when you have nothing, you have an advantage. You are starting from zero. When you are starting from zero in a clean slate, you can design things in your own way. You don't have to start with the leftovers. 
when you have some leftover, some rudimentary structure, you are stuck because you can't get away from that. I felt we are lucky. We have nothing. So we start from zero. We can design our own thing. We design our banking in our own way. And it works. People have lots of questions. Will it work here? Will it work there? Will it does good? Any good? They may question, but we did a completely new way. Along this line, the telecommunication is becoming freed from the state control. So we and it came to Bangladesh. Bangladesh government wanted to have telecommunication license for private sector. We applied to have a license for a tele telephone company, mobile phone company. Everybody was surprised. You work for the poor people. Why do you need a license for a mobile phone company? I said, yes, for a good reason. We want to create a mobile phone company and bring the telephones to the poor women in the village. Everybody shocked. A mobile phone in the hands of a poor woman. At that time, mobile phone was a symbol of extreme wealth. If you have a mobile phone, you must be extremely rich. That was the time. We are saying we'll bring it to the poor woman. People ask me, what is she going to do with it? Who is she going to call? <laughs> I said, no, I don't worry about who is she going to call. People will come to her to make a call. And she will make money. Because she will sell the service of the phone. Uh, nobody will believe in such a thing. We got the license. We created the company. Our first choice is to go to the village. And Grameen Bank started giving loan. And women started taking cell phones and selling the service. Everybody's poured lined up behind her to make a phone call because everybody needed to call somebody. And it became a roaring business for poor women. If you had a phone call, phone telephone at that time, this is early, late 90s, 97, 98, 99. If you had a telephone, if you're a poor person, it will take probably two years to get out of poverty right away. You make so much money with one phone. And very soon we had more than half a million telephone ladies. We call them telephone ladies. People never thought telecommunication, never believed that phone could be used in rural areas. It changed the whole telecommunication concept. Everywhere now, telephones everywhere. Everybody has a telephone. We brought down telephone costs all the way down. We can made it for pennies you can call. And that's what it is. So we brought technology in the hands of a poor person. I started saying, truly we have given voice to the voiceless. These women never could talk to anybody beyond her family. You know, the first time she could call anybody anywhere in the world and tell whatever she feels. We gave her a list of numbers. It started with the telephone number of the prime minister. Her home number, home number, office number, secretary's number. I said, if you feel mad about something, call her. You can't see her. It's very difficult to get to her. But if you make a phone call, that phone will ring someplace. Somebody will pick it up, not knowing that you are calling it. And you have to talk. You can talk. And blast them off. Whatever they are. That's the power. And get the telephone number of local MP, local police chief, whatever she will need, minister in charge of women affairs. You are a woman, go and talk to her, tell her what it is. 
So this is how we redesign things in our own way. We create a lot of companies. We create a solar energy company to bring solar energy in the villages. At the beginning, people were, oh my God, this is so expensive. Village people don't need it. So we gave them the calculation how it makes sense in economic sense between kerosene and solar energy. It was extremely difficult to sell five solar home systems a month. People are so reluctant. They said it's a magic. Soon it will disappear and then we lost our good money. These people are just selling it to make money. So now we're selling it to serve you. So finally we started moving from 10 to 20, 20 to 50 solar home system per month. Today, 16 years later, after we created that company, we sell more than 1,000 solar home systems per day. So it became a big business. And we crossed the million solar homes last November. So a million homes in the villages now have electricity because they have the solar energy with their own money. It took us 16 years to come to the million homes. How long will it take to get to the next million? Less than three years. How long it will take to get to the third million? Less than two years. Because now speed is very high. People love it. People know that you are watching television. My children are running to your house. Because I don't have the electricity. I don't have a television. You have a television. And you get every, all the news, everything, everybody asks, what is the news today? You tell because the whole village pours over to your house to find out. So everybody wants to have uh, mobile phone. Uh, sorry, the solar system, mobile phone, everything together. So this is how it expanded. We created all these companies. Why? Did you want to make money for ourselves? No. That idea never entered our mind, making money out of the business. We created each company to solve a problem. And we wanted to make it sustainable. That's why we call it a business. Because money can be recovered, whatever you have done. All cost has to be covered. So we define a word called social business. This is what we do. What is social business? It's a non-dividend company to solve a human problem. Owner of the company can take back the investment money, but nothing more than that. No dividend after that. Because he or she created the company to solve the problem, not to make money for herself or himself. Everybody says, you are crazy. Nobody will believe in that. You need money. You need profit. Without personal profit, there is no business. Nobody will be interested in your kind of business. You must be crazy to do such a thing. I said, I do it because I enjoy it. I never felt that I, I missed something. Every time I do it, I feel very happy about it. So I'm sure other people will feel happy about it. I said, no, they said, no, you are a very peculiar person. You may feel happy, but others will not. Because you need profit as the incentive to all businesses. The more money you make, the more happy you get. That is the incentive in business. You cannot dislodge that. I started saying, okay, I agree with profit being incentive, but not the incentive. It is one of the many incentives. There are other incentives. So like how? They asked me. 
I said, look, making money is a happiness. That's why it's an incentive. Making other people happy is a super incentive. Because it makes you so happy. If you feel that, then you're proper. But then why don't the people do that? I said, because our textbooks don't talk about it. Our practice doesn't demonstrate that. Our whole theory of capitalist system is about making money. Profit-centric world. That's where we're chasing money, money, money. It became a habit. It became an obsession, addiction. We cannot get out of it because our theory taught us so. We are teaching in our classrooms. Our students believe in so because we made them believe in so. To me, it's wrong. Why? For simple reason. Human beings are not robots. We are not money-making robots in this planet. We are human beings. We have selfishness. <clears throat> Today's business is about selfishness. You accumulate more for yourself. But human being is not all about selfishness. It's a combination of many things. We are selfish as well as selfless. But selflessness was never allowed into the business world. When you raise that question, business people will say, you know what, business is business. Meaning that you cannot be but selfish. I said that's a wrong way to interpret the whole human beings into the theory of business. So why don't you change that? Why don't you expand that so that we can elaborate those ideas? What I'm proposing is a business based on selflessness. Thank you. I'm talking about selflessness. Then business people say, economists say, why don't you step out of the business world then? Be a philanthropist. Do away with your money any way you like. I said, no. Why should I get away from business world and be a philanthropist and give away my money? Philanthropy is an excellent idea. In this world of money-centric businesses, this is the only escape route human beings have. So this is wonderful. But one limitation of philanthropy is money goes out, does an excellent job, but it doesn't come back. So if you want to repeat the same thing, you need a fresh batch of money to do that. So you're going around always raising money. Always saying, please help us to do this, run this hospital, run this school, run this medical facility, so that we can serve people. People still do that. They're not doing it for making money for themselves. They want to feel, they feel that they have to do something about them. Take care of the old, take care of the poor and so on. I said, if you can convert the same thing into social business concept, then the money goes out, does the work, and comes back. Then you use and reuse the money over and over again. So social, the philanthropy money has only one life. You cannot use it twice. But social business money has endless life. You can go on doing it again and again and again. So it becomes very powerful. All the difference between the social business and the conventional business, here you are not doing it for a selfish motive, you are doing it for a bigger motive to help the world. You can solve all the real problems. So we have done it in Bangladesh. I'm 
not even all the examples, but again, many international companies, multinational companies became interested in our work. They started coming to us, want to do social business with us. First one was Danone from France. It's a food company, yogurt company, produces yogurt all over the world. So we proposed to them to solve the problem of malnutrition among the children. Bangladeshi children, half the children are malnourished. And if you are malnourished, physically you don't grow well. You are stunted. Physical growth is stunted. If you are malnourished, your mental growth is stunted. You don't understand as clearly as fully developed child does. So there's a shame for a nation to have citizens like that. But we have not done anything much on that. So we thought, let's create a social business to address this issue. So that's what the Grameen and Danone joint venture came. We created a special kind of yoga, put all the micronutrients into that yoga, vitamin, iron, zinc, iodine, and whatever is needed, in exactly the proportion that is needed for the child to grow. And if you put too much medicine in a little cup of yogurt, guess what happens? It tastes very ugly. Nobody will like anywhere near you. But it's the genius of the creative power of Danone researchers. They suppressed that ugly taste, made it a very delicious taste. Children love it. And we made it very cheap and make it available to these young little children. Now they are eating it, enjoy it and gradually recovering their health. Why Danone got involved with it? They want to make tons of money out of it? No. They made it very clear. Here it's a social business. We invest here. Just make sure we can help solving this problem. And we are proud of this program. And that project in Bangladesh, the company that we created in Bangladesh, has impacted on the global operation of Danone itself. Many other companies came like Veolia, water company, to do social business, to provide water in the villages and so on, in a business way, social business way, not to make money for anybody. We had joint venture with BSF to produce mosquito nets for against malaria as a social business, so that we can produce mosquito nets very cheap so that everybody can afford it. We, joined, we have joint venture with Adidas, the shoe company to make shoes affordable to the poorest people, make it very cheap. I challenged them to make shoes under one euro. They were shocked in the beginning. Are they just shoes under one euro? I said, yes, if you want to reach out to the poor people, then this is what you have to do. And your motto of this company, the social business company, would be nobody in the world should go without shoes. As a shoe company, it's our responsibility to make sure we create good quality shoes for the poorest people, make it affordable for them. And that's what we do. So this is a series of things. Now idea has spread around the world. Now we are directly involved in many countries, but one country which surprised me, Germany picked up social business ideas, started creating social businesses in Germany. Japan is another country which picked it up. We are directly involved in Brazil, setting up social businesses. Haiti, it's a very exciting experience for us in Haiti. It's a long story, how exciting that is. Colombia, Uganda, 
just beginning. Tunisia, just beginning. Uh, India. So these are the countries that we are directly involved. What we do in each of these countries, we go ahead and first we create a social business fund. Put money into that fund and challenge everybody in the country. Come up with ideas, a business idea to solve small problem that you see, the tiny bit of the big problem that you have around you. What are the problems? Unemployment is a problem. Poverty is a problem. Health is a problem. Dependence on state charity is a problem. Even in Europe, millions of people live on state charity. I said, if Bangladesh could afford state charity, nobody in Bangladesh would be poor. Because we hide poverty by giving state charity. Hiding poverty is not a solution. You are making people dependent. Human being is not about dependence. Human being is about independence. Human being is about its own creative power. Each human being is packed with unlimited human creativity, unlimited creativity. But we suppress it. We go and make them dependent. In Glasgow, when I was, you mentioned Glasgow Caledonian University, that they made me the chancellor of the university. When I first went there, one of the problems they, they started talking to me is the problem of unemployment in Glasgow City. I said, what is so special about it? It's everywhere. So said, no, ours is a special because our young people is a fourth generation unemployed people. Fourth generation unemployed people. I said, why is that? What, is, what does it mean, fourth generation unemployment? Ever since our shipbuilding stopped, we lost all our shipbuilding to Japan, to Korea, to others. So we have many, many people became unemployed. And what happened? State supported them, gave them annual for a monthly check so that they can take care. So first generation goes, there comes a second generation unemployed in their families. They never went for a job. Third generation, now we have the fourth generation. Not just few, thousands of families of fourth generation unemployment. Later I was in Europe again, I raised this issue. Was it only fourth generation in Glasgow? In Europe we'll have eighth generation unemployment. I said, if I were one of them, I would be suing the government. You killed me. You took away all my energy and creative power from me. I'm a human being. I'm not, a, I'm not an animal in a zoo. That you keep me fed and keep me alive and be there. First responsibility of the society, of the state, is to help people who are in distress. That's why welfare is very important. Charity is very important for them. But the second responsibility of the society and the state is to help the person get out of charity. Politicians don't pay attention to that part. They are so good at giving the first part, give the money, because it comes from the taxpayer's money, I write the check, I'm a popular guy. But the responsibility is to get this young person out of all, old person, which person, out of the situation. And today, whole Europe is suffering from unemployment. Spain unemployment, youth unemployment is almost half, 50%. Look at Greece, look at Portugal. We were invited in Sweden to start social business to address the problem of unemployment in Sweden. 20% of the low-income families are unemployed. And Sweden is one of the top welfare states in the world. They have a headache with unemployed people. 
I said, it's a very simple thing. I don't have a magic formula of creating, creating employment. But I said, human creative power is so much. If we employ that power, there's no reason why anybody should be unemployed. I said, to begin with, what is unemployment? Tell me. I don't understand unemployment. Why a young person, active, aggressive, very pleasant person, willing to work, is all prepared, why is he or she unemployed? Is there something wrong in that person? No, there's nothing wrong in that person. So where is the wrong? Who should be blamed for it? Not the person. How come society has failed to use his or her creative power to contribute to the society? What kind of society have we built? No answer. I said the answer is system that you built is totally wrong. It generates unemployment. So I said, system now punishes human being by creating unemployment. Is it a fair thing to do? System punishing human beings? The fair thing, wouldn't the fair thing would be human being punishing the system? Tear apart the system? That we don't need to? That question has to be asked. It's not a few people unemployed in one country or one region. Hundreds of thousands, millions, billions of people are unemployed. What kind of glory we are singing about our system, which cannot even give the human creative power to be unleashed, to see that we can do that. So what do we tell people, the unemployed people? I say, look, first you think, this is what we do in Bangladesh. That's what I wanted to share. When the young people from Grameen families, eight and a half million families, come out of their families and we give them education loan, we send them to school so that they can pursue higher education. Now they are coming up, but they have no jobs. They complain. Why did we send us to school? Why did you give us all this money? How do we pay you money back? We have no jobs. I said, forget about all these things. First, believe in yourself and tell yourself every day, I'm not a job seeker, I'm a job giver. That's what I do. My mission in life is to create jobs, not work for somebody else. How do I do it? He gets shocked. He said, I don't have a job. Now he says, I'm a job giver. What am I going to do with jobs? I don't have my job. I said, look, you are a very privileged young people. Your mother owns a bank. I mean, bank is owned by the women who borrow from us, it's all owned by them. I said, your mother owns a bank. The bank has unlimited money. Why are you looking for a job? Why didn't you start something to create jobs for others? So we don't know what to create. I said, look at your mother. She started her life with $30 loan and start a business, selling eggs, selling vegetables, selling things or making things, sewing shirts. Now she has a $5,000 loan, $10,000 loan, starting from $30 loan. An illiterate mother who never heard of an institution called bank, she could start something like that. What good is your education? You cannot do better than your mother. Why don't you go and learn from your mother what she did and pick it up from there and make it 20 times bigger than what she did because you have education, you have the power, you have the money. 
So he said, solve your own problems. Don't go and cry over somebody else's shoulder. So we said, you create something which solves a problem of another person, another person, and that's it. And we started creating social businesses to solve the unemployment problem. Create a small business as a social business, not for making money for yourself, just to solve the problem of two, three young people. And if it works, then you have, a, you have solved the problem of three unemployed people. And if you do it for three, I do it for two, you do it for five, you're done. Why conventional business cannot do that? Because they are all worried about how much, what is the return on my investment. You don't have to return our investment as long as your money comes back, that's good enough for me. You're always looking for alternative investment where I can make more money. Here's this no alternative. This is something I have to do. And I take pleasure in it. So that's the idea. Now, we, are, we see lots of enthusiasm about it. And luckily, these young people have this enormous power now because of the technology in their hand. These are a completely different generation of young people, not the same young generation that we were. This is much more powerful. If they pick up something, they will get it done. And they can create a world where nobody will be a poor person, because that's a natural thing about human beings. They will create a world, there'll be no unemployed person. Because unemployment is not natural to human beings. I give, sometimes I joke about it to my colleagues. I said, have you ever heard an animal being unemployed? <laughs> How come human beings became unemployed? After all the glory of his knowledge and technology. I said, if an animal is unemployed, probably it is owned by a human being. That's the only reason. Otherwise, human beings, animals are not unemployed. So that we lost something in the process. It's our fault. So we create that, we undo all those faults. We create a world where there'll be nobody will be poor. We create a world where nobody will be unemployed. And when in that world, when you talk about unemployment, people will look at each other. What's wrong? What do you mean unemployment? Is he sick? Is he crippled? Even crippled people are employed. What's wrong with this person? They will not even understand what unemployment means because it's not natural to human beings. And we can create a world where nobody will live on state charity. Because there's no reason to, because I can take care of myself. That's a basic human thing. I can take care of myself. My job is to take care of others. That's a human thing. Not taking care of myself. That's not a human thing. It's very natural for human to do this kind of thing. So that's the world that we have to wait for. Thank you very much. Thank you.